Well, hi, Abdi. Hi, Ben. Thanks for being on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so we are sitting together in my hotel room, which is why this probably sounds not quite like my mouth is up against a microphone. <laughs> and Derek is MIA, or he's you know, off doing Derek things. So we're here at um, Southeast Ruby, and we are in Nashville. And we just wrapped up the conference. Mm-hmm. So I spoke this morning, and you spoke. I was the first talk, and you were the last talk. That's right. We get to bookend the, uh, the final day of the conference. Mm-hmm. How did your talk go? I think it went well. I really enjoyed it, and people seemed to like it. Mm-hmm. What were you talking about? I was talking about the value of avoiding code uh-huh. um, and various strategies for for avoiding the need to write code in the first place. Yeah. What uh, pushed you towards that topic? Well, uh, a lot of personal experience of building my business over the years. You know, I think I think starting out as a programmer for a lot of my programming career, I've been about as code happy as any coder typically is, mm-hmm. you know, always ready to just jump in and start writing code to solve some problem. But I've, I've discovered more recently that, uh, you know, there's a limited number, number of me. And I, I've realized as a business owner that I have to be extremely careful about where I focus my efforts um, and the leverage of, of what I do. You know, I, I have to really, to succeed, I really have to focus my efforts on the high leverage stuff and identify what's high leverage and what's low leverage. And a lot of times the code that we write is not as high leverage as we think. Yeah, totally. I told you uh, yesterday we were talking about this that I, I feel like I... I guess like we wasted, I think wasted is probably the right word, like quite a bit of time writing like a custom Rails app for mm-hmm. Upcase back in the day when it was mostly just delivering content in a fairly straightforward way. Mm-hmm. You run a content business as well. Yeah. Uh, you run Ruby Tapas. That's right. Uh, so screencasts on Ruby programming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have explicitly avoided that mistake around. Well, like, not at first. Um, okay. So, you know, I, well, when I first put it up, I, I knew I had to get it together quickly. And so I used a hosted service. But they didn't have a lot of the features that I eventually wanted to have. And so for years, I thought that, you know, my long-term plan was I'm going to build out some software of my own. As I have time, I'm going to build up software of my own. And eventually, I'm going to replace this hosted service with something that I build um, bit by bit. And what I discovered was that there's a lot of work to be done when you have... Uh, when you're selling screencasts, and especially when you're trying to make it a really good experience um, and give people what they want, there's, you know, you're handling subscriptions, of course, but you're also handling sending out the emails and you're handling, you know, streaming videos and downloading videos and posting the scripts in a nicely formatted way and categorization and search and tagging and RSS feeds and the list, you know, the list goes on and on. And, And what I realized after a while of working on this in my spare time is that really if I wanted to get it done, it would probably turn into a full-time job just writing this content delivery system and mm-hmm. subscription management system. Um, and, you know, that's not even to list things like, okay, we, we need to handle special deals for corporate teams and discounts and all kinds of stuff that go, goes into systems like that. And, you know, I realized it would, it would become a full-time job. You know, the implication of that was that the show Ruby Tapas would become a show about building the website Ruby Tapas. Mm-hmm. Because I would—that's all I'd be thinking about all the time—and that's not actually the show that I wanted to produce. Right. Totally. I think there's there's so much uh, hidden complexity that you don't see when you first think like, oh, I'll just build a simple content delivery platform. Simple, yeah. 
I think so, especially around like subscriptions, for example, like people look at Stripe and they're like, oh, well, like, yeah, I'll just use Stripe. And then yeah. the subscriptions are basically done. That's just like, you know, one method call and that you just create the subscription and then you're good to go. Obviously. And I couldn't believe how many times I was going back in the upcase code base to like manage some edge case around mm-hmm. subscriptions. There's this nasty disconnect where like Stripe has a database of what your customer's subscription statuses are. And you need to sort of mirror that data locally so that people can operate it on it from your thing. Right. And it was just... It just there were so many time I can't believe how much time we spent on mm-hmm. it. So I, I admire your restraint. Well, you know, like I said, I, I went that down that route for a long time and I finally had that that realization and I made myself a new rule, which was I will not write a single line of code to deliver this content. Huh. And you stuck to that? I did. I, I would allow myself to write code to import data into a new system. Um, I would allow myself to write code for pushing episodes up from my own computer. The, the formats that I had there mm-hmm. up to the site. Mm-hmm. So I mostly stuck with it. I think I might have written, you know, maybe a, a few dozen lines of code in like JavaScript for, for like tracking codes and stuff like sure, that. Sure. But what, you know, what I did was I, I looked around at the options that were open to me and I settled on WordPress mm-hmm. because, you know, funnily enough, a system that, that is highly evolved to publish content to the web is really good at publishing content to the web. Yeah. I feel like there are probably a lot of people that think they need fully custom solutions where WordPress is more or less the answer. Yeah. Like the right answer for them. So something that I said in today's talk, which is probably one of the more most contentious things that I've I said in that talk or have said for a while, is I firmly, at this point, having sort of been on both sides of this question, I firmly believe that if your business has a significant component, a significant content management component, so if you're publishing a whole lot of content or if you're publishing news posts or you're doing product listings, or some kind of portfolio, anything like that, and you're not using WordPress, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by that I mean you are wasting your own, either your own time and money or somebody else's. Mm-hmm. And there are so many reasons that this is true. Like I, I listed a few reasons in my talk, but then I had somebody come up to me after the talk and say, you know, we were building our product and we were just three developers, but then we just brought on our first marketing person. And she was like, you know, wouldn't it be cool if like, if I could change the marketing pages without having to go through you? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe we could use WordPress here. And, and, and they were like, oh, oh, WordPress. But they went ahead and did it. And now they have and integrated it with the rest of their site. And now when the marketing person wants to do some new marketing initiative, the programmers aren't the bottleneck anymore. Right. And, you know, she doesn't have to come to them and say, can I please have this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and it work, they're saying it's, it's working really well for them. And that, that was just a site with a few marketing pages. But some of the sites that I see, you know, are really large-scale content publishing systems. Mm. So when you made that decision to not write code to support the service, did it make it less fun for you? No. No? No. Because, I mean, you know, I have so many opportunities to write code. There are so many places where I can write code that are available to me mm-hmm. that opting out of one particular place is is not really a big deal, mm-hmm. you know. And ultimately, I mean, the fun thing is affecting some kind of change in the world, and that's yeah. why we write code. And code can be can be a really high leverage tool for that, but it isn't always. So no, it didn't really change my fun level at all. As a matter of fact, I I had a lot more fun because 
I was using this platform that let me very quickly plug in new features in a way that I never could have on my own. Mm-hmm. And and just be like be able to delight people. It's like you want an iTunes feed? I can give you an iTunes feed. You know, give me give me a few minutes. Yeah. So you were like dropping in WordPress plugins? Yeah. That, what that was? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's nice to have a whole ecosystem of just things you can fire in there. Mm-hmm. As opposed to custom everything. Right. Right. Or, you know, in, in like in the Rails world, we have we have a lot of gems. Yeah. Um, we have sort of a, a split between libraries, which require a fair amount of integration, and then SaaS services, which often also require a fair amount of integration, or else or else that's a very th- sort of flimsy connection between the two. And I think the the, uh, the plugin approach that WordPress has is kind of an interesting midpoint between those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you sort of summarize your talk by saying, like, pay attention and make, like, don't reach for code as a default, but think about the fact that it, beca- it, is, it is a liability, it has a downside, and if you can avoid it, you maybe want to? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the, the code as a liability is one of the explicit points that I, I tried to hit on, because that's something that, you know, a lot of people have written about, about that over the years. There, there's been a lot of uh, blog posts over the years talking about how code really does become a liability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, that's going to be true of any code you write. And the question is, you know, because it's going to be there, it's going to be a liability from the maintenance standpoint. It's going to be a liability from the standpoint of bringing new programmers in and from just making your code, your system harder to change. Uh, the, the question is, the, this code that's inevitably a liability is it worth it? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's the code that's right at the center of what your product does. It's what makes it special. Mm-hmm. And that code, that, that liability is worth it. But then you have, a lot of times you have code that's at the periphery of your system and you're still on the hook to maintain it, but it's not worth it. Right. Totally. I was just, as you're talking, I was thinking like, if, if everyone heeded your advice or, or they heeded it more often, and built fewer features and wrote less code, the course I'm releasing soon would be less valuable. <laughs> it's like the more code you have, the, the more work you need to do to keep it going, right? Yeah. Like every new feature is harder as you add another one. Yeah, and this and, is why, I mean, this is why we have we need, you know, heavy-duty refactoring skills because right. we have these big code bases that we thought one thing at one time and then we thought something different later and now we need to change them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Do you have any changes coming down the pike for Ruby Tapas? Uh, nothing big. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that's not completely true. Um, I have started filling the pipeline a lot more with guests. So mm. this is something that nobody has seen yet, but they're going to start noticing soon is that there are going to be a lot more guest episodes. I, I decided to really get my get myself in gear and and really reach out and book people that I thought would be have something interesting to say. So nice. we'll have a lot more perspectives on the show. So that's going to be that's going to be new. That was kind of a dream that we thought of during the upcase day. It's just like, well, what if we didn't have to produce the content ourselves? How how are you working that out with the people that are going to be making content for you? Um, mostly I just reach out to people that I know or people that a lot of times they're people that already listen or watch the show. And I say, hey, would you be interested in, in making an episode for me? And they're like, sure. Mm-hmm. So, and is it like a consulting thing? Are you just going like to pay them um, straight up, you think? Or? You know, I, I, do a, I usually offer a few options. I mean, a lot of times, you know, a lot of times they're friends of mine or they're fans of the show and they're just like, I'll just do it. You know, That's I don't cool. care. But um, what I, I, I say a lot of the time is like either, you know, we'll do it one of two ways. Either I'm going to give you a, an honorarium, um, just flat, mm-hmm. or... I will work a deal that it's it's like, so I'll put all of the facilities we have at your disposal to, to make sure we produce a great episode together. And then I'll 
basically have an embargo on it for like three months or something. Mm. And it, you know, and then after that, it's the, it's theirs as well as you know. I get to keep keep it in the in the, so a, the library, but then they also get to use it for whatever they want to do. If they want to put it on their blog or use it to you know draw attention to some product of theirs or something like that. Gotcha. So it's exclusive for you for a little while, and then, yeah, okay, yeah, nice. and that's so that's something that's worked pretty well. A lot of people have opted for for that because hmm. I'm able to help them produce something that they probably wouldn't have been able to produce on their own hmm. um, because I've got. I've honed such a, a content production pipeline at this point um, that I'm able to take a lot of the work off of them. And so it's not, you know, it's not this daunting prospect of like, I've never created a, you know, screencast before, let alone a, a highly polished one. Gotcha. So you point to them towards like, use this tool, set these settings, set um, the file when you're it's, done. It's a little less like I do. There is some of that. There are some guidelines like I've, you know, developed a lot of guidelines over the over the years of like how to set up your editor to be less distracting mm -hmm. um and and stuff like that but a lot of what i do is delegated at this point so like when i produce an episode right now what i'm doing is i'm writing a script so i have an idea of something i want to say and i'm writing a script about it which is basically a blog post that's that i then annotate with shot numbers mm. uh, so it has the code right in there i'm, I'm working out the code and ahead of time, but it's also got all the pros that I'm going to be reading out as voiceover and it's heavily annotated with shot numbers. And so I know like each change that's made, each small change that's made to the code has its own shot number. Hmm. Then for most episodes, I then turn it over to somebody else to record the screen. Really? So I do not record my own screen at this point for wow. most episodes, unless I'm doing something special that, that I want to do myself. Interesting. Um, and I, I will like, now I'll come up with, sometimes I'll come up with the visual aids and I'll do that myself. Although I've, I've also delegated visual aids at, um, in certain cases. I've had people do animations for me, um, or at least one case of, of that. Uh, I've had someone do um, some live action video for me. The screen recording itself is largely delegated to my screen typist at this point. So wow. I turn that over to him. And I record the voiceover. I turn my voiceover over to the video, my video editor. Uh, the screen typist turns over the the um, raw shots uh -huh. um, that he's annotated with the shot numbers. Because we've got a video editor, we can both just put as many mistakes as we want in there. Um, you know, he can put it, just do multiple shots, retakes until he gets a shot the the way he wants it. All goes to the video editor. Video editor does a rough cut, um, then it comes back to me, and I do a final cut because I'm super picky about like exact timing yeah um wow it never would have occurred to me to like outsource the typing part that's so interesting yeah that was well that was that that i was very excited when i realized that i could actually do that and a lot of you know a lot of thought went into that and a lot of a lot of adjusting of workflows and i you know this is what i find um kind of coming back to leverage a lot of times i find that that you where you find leverage new leverage in business or in in making something is realizing a way that you can change your workflow so that it works better with other people or so that it can be yeah, split yeah. up better. Um, and this is something that I think we often have trouble with, especially programmers have trouble with, because um, we tend to be very precious about our workflows. Oh, sure. Um, we tend to be very like, this is the way, like a lot of times the excuse that I see people use for like not using a service or not using some off the shelf software is, well, we need it to work exactly like this. And they're not willing to bend on how they work. Mm. And so, like, you know, the the screen typist thing was only possible because I first figured out the process of assigning shot numbers to every change 
to the, to the code because that's what makes it possible for a video editor who really doesn't know anything about code to splice together the voiceover and the, um, and the shots. Mm -hmm. It's kind of blown my mind. Were you as happy with the final product as when you were doing all the, all the stuff yourself, like the typing yourself too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the way that I recruited my screen typist is I had, you know, I, I have a lot of people that, that subscribe to the show and some of them are more involved than others. And I had this one guy that like every time I, I was late posting a video, he'd be like, hello. Wow. Did you miss, did, did, is there a, not a video this week? Uh-huh. I jokingly think of it as hiring my most annoying fan. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, this is somebody who really cared about the show. Totally. And, you know, clearly cared about the, the, the quality of, of it. And so I, you know, got to talking to him and, and uh, we worked out a deal for that. Wow. Um, and what I was able to do then, since this is somebody who cared so much about it, is that we were able to, I was able to slowly sort of transfer all of my tastes about how mm. to record a video. I mean, and there's more to that than you might think. Like there's a lot of little little details of what I think of as, as the screen performance that I've kind of developed over the years. Mm -hmm. Like where does the cursor end up at the end of a change? Mm. That matters to me because it's where your eye is going to be. Is the code you're changing in the center of the screen or is it up way up at the top or the bottom? I don't like it when it's way up at the top of the screen. I want it, the code that's being worked on to be right in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, little stuff. But, you know, I was able to transfer all that those tastes over to him. And at, at this point, you know, often I realize that the way he has recorded something is better than, than how I would have. Interesting. And uh, so that's, you know, that's the, the wonderful thing about delegation. And this is something that I actually had to cut out of this talk. But I really wanted to talk a little bit about delegation because... Mm -hmm. The thing is, code never learns unless you teach it. Hmm. The code that you write for stuff, and I'm not sure I could, ever could have written code for recording the screen. Well, I had some ideas about that at one point. But when you delegate something, people actually get better at it over time. Hmm. And their failure modes are really good. Hmm. Human failure modes are great most of the time because yeah. they're like, they can actually give you context and they can maybe try a few things before they fall over and... and complain, you know, and they can, again, they can learn. Yeah. No, there's no, no method error for humans. Yeah. I mean, it depends on who you're working with. Some people sure. definitely have no method errors. Yeah. 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 Huh. Does this person, does your screen typist use Emacs? Yes. Interesting. So I remember, I remember a tweet from you, like from probably four years ago that was like, people are always asking me, how do I get, uh, results piped into my editor? in Vim like you're doing, assuming that you were using Vim. Right. And the answer was use Emacs. Emacs, yes. Yeah. Now, and, and honestly, at this point, I would not care what editor he's using, yeah. but it happened to be that he also used Emacs just like me, and that made the that made the process a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really should, uh, you know, give credit, named credit here. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, Federico Yacchetti, uh who's doing this stuff for me. Okay. And, uh, and we've had a, a really good partnership there. Cool. You're in the minority, I would think, as a Emacs user in the Ruby world. Yeah, I have actually been an Emacs user in the past. People assume that because I like Vim, I, I hate Emacs. Just like they assume that's like that drama is built in. Uh, it's not the case. Like I used to do a fair amount of Lisp, and so like Emacs is hands down the best Lisp situate like editor that I had could right. find. Sure. Um, and I do like I wish I could program Vim in Emacs Lisp. Like mm -hmm. I just have or just have well, there's Space Max now. What's that? Um, Space Max. So there have been Vim emula emulation layers in, in Emacs for a long time. Yep. Um, but the Space Max project kind of took it to the next level. Okay. Um, so it's built on top of I think Evil Mode, which is probably the the best and most pop like most recent 
um, Vim emulation in, inside of Emacs. And then Space Max is a whole bunch of packages to build a whole like modern environment, modern coding environment in Emacs that are built on on evil mode. So it's all done using the Vim style, um, like leader key and and fairly sane semantic you know key bindings and stuff like that huh. it's one of those like someday things for me like it's yeah. one of those things that like probably when i finally get around to learning space max it's all i'll use mm -hmm. i just haven't gotten there yet that's actually kind of how i feel about it yeah like emacs with evil evil which it sounds like space max is sort of where i need to be going like if i can have the vim modal editing and the efficiency and then also have an editor that's built Emacs lips, beautiful lisp is so much is so nice to code pieces, yeah then i'm pretty interested in that yeah although neovim what's the is it lua is the is like the person is it? i think you can script neovim in, in lua which i haven't used but i assume is a lot nicer than vim script because i think everything is yeah lua is yeah it's, it's a pretty straightforward scripting language the cool thing about the you know the way emacs and i don't know how neovim is, is done the way of course emacs is is done it is Lisp pretty much all the way down. So yeah. like everything is written in Lisp except for a few special cases where they had where it's optimized into C. Right. Um, and the nice thing about that is that you can re-implement anything. Like totally. everything, it's just a big soup that you operate in, and and you know it's not like oh this stuff is off limits. Right. Exactly. You know, it's a it's Lisp all machine. All it is, it's a Lisp machine that happens to have had a, an editor written on inside of it, and you can rewrite it. Totally. Yeah, I remember like trying to figure out like how do I get this behavior? How do I change this behavior in Emacs? And it was like override the function that yeah. gets called when you hit that key and change the behavior. And I was like, oh, you can just override the function. It was like it was awesome. Or you can add like advice, you know, function advice to it. So you can have something. You can add a thing that says after this system function is uh, is is called, run this extra hook. Interesting. Um. So yeah, it's it's amazingly flexible. Yeah. Now I'm not an exclusive Emacs user, but. I do still use it a fair amount. Yeah. So going back to Ruby Tapas for a second, I guess we're sort of still there technically. Um, the early days, you were doing, I think, two screencasts a week was your publishing The cadence? very early days, I was doing three. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. That's, that's aggressive. That's yes. ambitious. How long did that last? I am not sure. I feel like it must have lasted maybe like a couple of months or something. Yeah. And did the people in your life uh, tell you when we have to talk? Uh, I don't know if it was that, but I think I told myself yeah. pretty much the same thing. And okay. so pretty early on, I transitioned to two a week. Okay. Is that where you are now? And I am now at one. Okay. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be able to do a few more that were more involved. Mm -hmm. um, and it always, you know, I would always like punt on the, the more interesting episode ideas because it's like, oh, I don't have time for that this week. Oh, I don't have the time for that this week. Yeah. Do you prep these in advance? Like do you do a handful and, and, and then like drip them out or are you doing them on the fly? Um, I try to keep a pretty large buffer. Nice. So, and it's not always a buffer of complete episodes. I wish it was a buffer of complete episodes, but like right now what I have is a buffer of semi-complete episodes. So they're like, they're at least to the point where they're kicked over to other people. Mm -hmm. And then they'll get kicked back to me before I, before I need to put them live. Mm -hmm. Did you have any pushback from people as you dropped the publishing schedule? No, not really. Yeah. It's kind of counterintuitive, but it... it it's I mean, I try to be really transparent with stuff like this. I try yeah. to explain, like, you know, the commitments in my life and I and what's driving the decision. Yep. And people have been very, like, the last time I did it, you know, when I went from two to one, I got a lot of really nice mm. email replies that were just like, you know, you know, you take care of yourself and you do what you need to do and I'm yep. going to keep 
keep paying you no matter what. So that's like, awesome. I would still subscribe if it was one a month. I get email, got emails like that. So that's cool. Really that's nice. great. I think that's interesting. I think part of that is like the Ruby community is a, comprised of good people overall. Like I seem to get, I seem to get a lot of nice emails. Yeah. But also, I think I would, I think that's your, that's your reward for like being such a good person for so long. I think with a business like yours people know who you are. Like you are the business in a way. Yeah. So like they feel like they have a personal relationship right. with you. And so if you're like, here's what's going on in my life. Here's why I can't keep doing two. It's not sustainable. They're like, I totally understand. It's, yeah. it's not like Microsoft saying like, you know, this, this thing's going to change. It's like, this is Avdi. And like, yeah, man, if you need more time, take more time. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of those benefits of being like a small mm -hmm. business owner. Yeah. I try to, I mean, I try to make sure that like the, the face of the business is me and, and, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to be pretty transparent with the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say you achieved that. So I saw a blog post. Uh, I was doing a little research before our talk. Um, and you had this interesting blog post about how people view a quote-unquote side hustle versus an actual product business. Oh, yeah. Do you remember writing this? I do remember writing this. It's a little old now. Vaguely. Um, <laughs> it seemed like your gist was, if you describe what you're doing as a side hustle, everyone kind of views it in a sort of... Uh, rose-colored glasses type of way, I guess. They're more forgiving about it, but uh, the product business is like sort of less admirable in people's mind or something. Like after you've been working on your side project for a couple of years, right. you're like, I still have to keep showing up and making money. This is for real. This is like for the rent now. This isn't just like a fun gravy thing over on the side right. now. You seem to be venting some frustration with people who... Yeah, been... you know, and it's. I think it was one of those cases where, and you're probably familiar with this, like... You can get a hundred incredibly nice emails and then you'll get one person complaining and you'll think about it for days. <laughs> it's um, so hard to avoid. And I think there might have been a little of that that went into that particular blog post because, yeah, you know, when you when you say you're doing this thing on the side, everyone's like, yeah, rah, 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 go. Um, I should do that too. And I think, yeah, you know, thinking back, I think... I got a little bit, a very small amount of pushback when I was doing some, some of my email marketing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I know for some people, for some, particularly I, you know, I'm marketing to the programmer audience and they tend to be very allergic to that word. Yeah. And so I was sending out emails to my mailing list saying, I've got this, I, I forget what I was introducing or I it might've been a, a promo or something, but you know, I got one or two people that were like, I don't, this is, this is too markety for me. I can't believe you've, you know, sold out effectively. Mm -hmm. And, and it got me thinking about how, you know, when you have, when you're kicking off some kind of side thing, people tend to be extremely supportive, but you know, what they don't realize is that, you know, you can't just mark, you can't just be like, Oh, can you help? Can you support this thing at the very beginning? Like you have to, when you run a product business, you do have to keep reminding people that you exist. Yeah. Do you feel like you had any major lessons learned from the experience of running this business? Like if you could go back and talk to yourself from a couple of years ago, you would say, just do this instead or make these changes right now. You know, surprisingly little. I think most of the calls that I've made, I'm pretty happy with. Hmm. You know, the stuff I was talking about, about earlier with, with just not not putting time into trying to reinvent the wheel with content publishing software. I probably could have learned that a little bit earlier mm -hmm. um, and not worried about having to eat my own dog food as much. Mm. Going back further, I wish that I had started building my mailing lists earlier. I think mm. that's sort of the universal 
regret of anybody who really, who decides to start a business. Totally. What about pricing? I remember you started off at a pretty low pricing level. Um, I feel good about that. I mean, it was it was it was sort of parity with other stuff at the time, and then the you know times changed, and and I slowly increased it, and I think that's been a, that's gone pretty well. Yeah, I don't I don't think I have any regrets there. Cool. I mean, it's interesting. You started off, I think it was like nine dollars a month for three screencasts a week. Right. And now it's thirty dollars a month for well, one it's, or something. Well, um, there are there are like there are two tiers, and so there's there, the highest tier is is thirty five dollars a month for a bit more, mm -hmm. uh, a bit more in, in terms of both features and content, and then the lower tier is, I'm suddenly forgetting what it is. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, so if I if I could tell you three years ago, like, hey, you could have these tiers and only do one a week and you'll still be fine. You wouldn't want to know that? that, that you wouldn't have want to change that earlier? You know, the, the question that I always think about with stuff like that is, is that actually true that I could have? I mean, I, I think I probably could have gotten away with the one a week mm -hmm. at the beginning. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that I could have gotten away with the pricing that I have now. Mm -hmm. I was much less of a of a known quantity at the time, mm -hmm. much less of a proven quantity. You know, at this point, people know understand that they're getting something that is, you know, has some very unique qualities. You know, they're getting very polished um, videos that give you just like one idea at a time and and are very focused and people really dig that and they really dig, you know, the, the kind of insights that they get from it. But mm -hmm. at the time, you know, what was to differentiate me from anybody else who was charging $9 per screencast or $9 per month or whatever? You're obviously freaking grim. <laughs> You use Emacs. <laughs> yeah, it's. I honestly think more than one a week. I think even one a week is maybe too much. Like I, I signed up for a trial for a service because I was interested in learning some Elm, and I found like an Elm course, and they were like, "We'll send you Elm stuff like every day." Or I think it's either five, five or seven days a week. Wow, was a new video, and I was like, "Hey, how the hell will you possibly maintain this publishing right. schedule?" Like, I just feel for you on an emotional level. Right. But I don't I don't want a video every day. I don't think I can absorb information like yeah. that. Yeah. And I definitely hear from a lot of people who say that they're very backlogged. Mm -hmm. But then again, I also hear, hear from a lot of people who are like, I watch this every, you know, every time it comes out and I look forward to the next one. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it definitely seems to be, you know, it takes all types. And I, I, it's hard to say at what point people would start saying, I wish there were more. Yeah, it is tough. Maybe videos should expire. It's like you, you had two weeks to watch it. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I removed it. I pulled it from your account. Make that a lower tier. Yeah, exactly. Expiring videos. And maybe you don't even make them. You just pretend that they were there. <laughs> Save yourself a lot of time. Uh, if people wanted to hear more about you or Ruby Tapas, do you want to plug some links? Uh, well, Ruby Tapas is rubytapas.com. Okay. And um, I am slowly moving my online presence over to avdi.codes. Okay. It's kind of a recent thing for me. So You have a few online presences. Yes. It's like Virtuous Code. Virtuous and Code. That's eventually going to move under the new domain. Okay. It hasn't yet. It's Opti. currently at virtuouscode.something.com, I think. Okay. <laughs> Probably all of them. Cool. Um, we'll link yeah. up your myriad social presences then. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks for being on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah.